Welcome to the One Link Podcast. I'm joined again by my main man, James. How's it going, James, down there in Okieville? That's right. That's right. Things are good down here in, in Oklahoma. They are, in fact. How are you doing up there? Good. Doing well. Enjoying mm-hmm. the spring. Probably this will come out in summer, but right now we're in the middle of a beautiful spring. So That's right. Yeah. As we recorded, it's a brisk wind and nice, and it'll be like the dregs of June or July when this one comes out. Uh, you'll be hot and sweaty and wishing for cool spring. This is the last episode in our series on working with Muslims. And so uh, we're glad you've stuck around for the whole ride. And hopefully it's been really useful. Kind of the last thing, not that we couldn't talk about this for 50,000 years, but the last thing that we really wanted to talk about was the cost of following Jesus. Um, we're working with Muslims. We'd like them to come to faith in Jesus. Um, but what's the cost? Is there a cost? I think that's a dumb question. Of course, there's a cost. Um, so that's our discussion today. You know, Brad, the first thing I thought about when we were thinking about this uh, was just is that I think there's always a cost to follow Jesus. Like when we th- when we think about Muslims coming to faith, like we we have heard stories, we think about all that stuff. But like the Bible pretty clearly says that that there will be there will be persecution and that there is a cost. Like if you're following Jesus, there's going to be some cost that you have to pay here, there, or anywhere. Yeah, I think about uh, you know the verse Second Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That seems pretty clear. Uh, you know, of course, Jesus himself said, "In this world, you'll have trouble." but take heart, I've overcome the world. So there's obviously vast degrees of what that looks like from, you know, maybe people thinking poorly of you all the way to obviously losing your life for Christ. And, you know, I don't, I, there, we certainly have examples of that in America, but we tend to be uh, certainly less persecuted for our faith here uh, than other places. So. Yeah. And to be honest, it feels a little bit awkward for you and I to have this conversation (laughs) about, hey, let's talk about because it's so theoretical for us to to speak frankly, you know, sitting here in my nice air conditioned office in a open church building that, you know, we we can we can meet with no worries on Sunday. You know, we we lack some credibility on the topic of uh, persecution, to be honest, James, but hopefully if we can you know, bring some uh, attention to this that will you know, cause people to pray or to uh, want to sacrifice to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, then maybe it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, it makes me think, I'm going to reference him a couple of times in this episode, but I'm thinking about uh, Nick Ripkin's books, uh, The Insanity of God and The Insanity of, Insanity of Obedience. And he's just talking about when he, when he first was, I think he was talking to a Russian believer and, and the guy's like, it's all over the Bible. And, and Nick's like, what do you mean? And he's like, he's like, do you read the Bible? Like the whole thing talks about persecution, but kind of from our perspective, you know, we don't see it as much. And so definitely more theoretical. So when we think about, when we think about Muslims coming to faith, what are some of the typical costs that they have to weigh or what are some of the costs that they're going to pay by making that choice? Yeah, I mean, we certainly think our minds go to uh, being killed or imprisoned and that we certainly have plenty of examples of that. But there are 
other things that even, you know, if you don't get to that level of persecution that are very, very difficult. I mean, just heart wrenching things that people go through. Probably one of the biggest would be, you know, your family's response being sort of ostracized by your family or cut off in some way from them. I mean, that's, that would be heart wrenching to us here in America, but it, you know, with the way a lot of these societies are set up to be ostracized from your family, your community, it has even a, a, an even weightier kind of effect to your life. Mm-hmm. Flesh that out a little bit. What's it? Why is that over there in most of these societies? Uh, so, so many things work around family, right? Your, I mean, your job may be, you know, impacted by family, your, uh, your social network. You know, a lot of my friends overseas is like they're the people that they spent time with were cousins and relatives and family members. I mean, we, we do that too, but we tend to have a whole separate set of friends and, you know, can find community in other areas. Oftentimes those two things go hand in hand, family and community. And and I think also just, there's such a high value on honor and face. And when you are put in a place where you're seen as shameful or, you know, outcast in some way, that's, that's, it's very painful in these settings. Uh, yeah. so we can relate some ways, in some ways, I think you and I think about our families, you know, cutting us off, that would be very, very hard, mm-hmm. but there are some further implications in many places. What's your experience like? How often do they cut them off? Like, like you're dead to me. And how often is it like kind of shunned or like you become the black sheep of the family? Like, what's that look like? Do you know? It depends highly on the context. Like, I don't know that I have a you know, a comprehensive understanding of that, just sort of anecdotes that I've heard here and there. The con- the Muslim context that I served in, uh, it was, you saw some of both, you know, there was uh, certainly shades of gray in terms of they're cut off, but, you know, are they exactly dead to them? Maybe there's chance for reconciliation in the future, uh, all the way to, they just, you know, we you don't tell anybody about this. We're not talking about this again, you know, whether it's sort of like, that that sort of thing ignoring the fact just as long as you don't talk about it we're okay you know all the way to we're never speaking again so you get you get all of that i think because mm-hmm. it also like it also brings a lot of shame to the family itself right not just right issue but it'd be a little bit like i don't know what it'd be like like if you if, if it was your child that went and shot up the school you know like that would yeah, the, certainly there's, well, in, in many contexts, there's the shame element, the sort of community uh, looking down on your family or being shameful in that way. There's also the security element of it, of the, the government or, you know, someone, some authority that could cause problems for your family, depending on the, the place. So that, that was a big issue where we were. There was fear that if my kid becomes or my relative becomes a Christian, there could be consequences for us too. Why did why did the government care? Uh, the, again, depends on the context. Where we were, the big issue was they just saw it as a potentially destabilizing thing. Mm. You know, people changing religions, and uh, you know, maybe now you have some Muslim, some Christian that could cause instability or tensions or fighting or who knows. Mm-hmm. Governments like to be in control, and it just that I think that felt like uh, something that they didn't have control over. Gotcha. What other kind of costs do they have to pay? So you got family shame, uh, cut off from your family. 
I mentioned earlier about jobs, financial consequences, particularly in that community. If, if you're seen as an undesirable, that could make finding a job difficult. You know, there, or if people, if people know that they may discriminate against you as they, in their hiring, um, a big one where, where we live was marriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you become a Christian, either maybe if you're not open about it, then you've got to, you know, your parents are going to arrange someone to marry you and they're going to be Muslim. And so you do just accept that. Um, there's only, you know, a, a lot of times in that community, there might just be a handful of other believers. Maybe there's none that you know of. And so do you, you know, when it's time to get married and in that culture, there's no choice about getting married. It's not like here where you can get married or not get married. You've got to get married. And so, finding a believer or, uh, you know, going against your parents, trying to set you up with a Muslim, very, very complicated relationally. So that was often a huge thing of trying to help find another Christian for someone to marry and all these kind of things. From, so like from an American perspective, it's like, who cares if you're not married? Why was it so important? I mean, we're talking specifically your context, but I think it would generally apply across the Muslim world. Why was it so important? that you get married? Uh, just culturally, that that's the only route. I mean, unless, you know, on some real extreme cases, but uh, here we're very preference oriented, you know, or you, you choice oriented. If you find someone you like, you can get married there. There's just kind of, there's a, a path that you, that culturally you follow and, and there's much more group think and group kind of decisions about these things. And so to get married would be very uh, strange, unusual. Um, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't do it. So same with having kids. I mean, that was, uh, unless you're physically unable to, you, uh, you have to have kids. <laughs> it's just, mm -hmm. you know, it seems strange to us, but that's just culturally, there's no other way. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, so what would you, what would you, what would you tell guys that were wrestling with that? Or I don't suppose you were probably talking with girls, but maybe Marcy was talking with girls. What, how did you, how did you deal with that? Um, I don't there's maybe only a handful of experience I had where people were single and kind of getting to that age where they needed to get married and they were trying to figure it out. Uh, a lot of times there was in the larger network of believers, because in, you know, in any given area, there might be only a few believers. Mm -hmm. There was some, you know, whatever connecting and, Hey, about this, Hey, we, we know a single girl here and, Mm -hmm. So that was one way. So you had a matchmaking business over there. That's what you did. Yes, but, but sometimes there just was, you know, no, not really any good options. So it was, it was hard. I mean, I, I knew a guy who went ahead. He, he felt like he, you know, he didn't have a choice. He had to do marry who his parents had kind of set him up to marry. And she was a Muslim, obviously. And it, there was, it was very, very hard. You know, mm -hmm. there's a reason why we encourage people that we're discipling and things like that to um, also marry a believer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's easy for me to say what a bad choice, but it was very difficult circumstances for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I didn't work with Muslims, but I can think of believers who married non-believers. And I, I just don't know any of them that it worked out well for. I'm sure there are some. I'm sure there's some where later the spouse comes to the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um you know, but there's a command, be equally yoked. And then there's the command, honor your father and mother. <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, that's, that's a real challenge. What, 
yeah, in your perfect scenario, how would you have them deal with that? I don't, I don't know that I have a perfect scenario. I mean, we want, yeah. we want like, what's the right answer here? I, I don't think, I think there isn't one. Mm-hmm. You just gotta, they've got to think through what, um, again, if there's no believer that they know, uh, you know, are they just going to choose to not get married? There's, it's, there's lots of imperfect solutions. Uh, certainly, the, I think the first solution is if, to try to find another believer, try to do that kind of connecting. Uh, because as you say, it usually does not go well when they marry a non-believer. You know, this idea that they'll lead that person to the Lord. Often it's the other way around. They get kind of pulled away. I mean, you could find examples of where the spouse gets led to the Lord, but um, it's pretty rare. What So what other kind of persecution cost do they have to weigh? I think the, the sense of isolation that people feel. Um, you know, in America, yes, there are, there's lots of ungodly stuff going on, but you can always find a community of people who think like you and mm-hmm. who are interested in the things that you want to. You can, I mean, even church-wise, you can, well, th- this church, I like their music. I like the way they do this. I like the way they think about this. You know, you can, mm-hmm. you can find that almost anywhere in America, but in a lot of these places, you become a believer. You're, you're just so different. You're so isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you maybe don't have a community that you can find support from. So that's really challenging. Uh, and I think can cause doubts. It's, it's almost like everyone, you know, am I going crazy? Everyone else seems to think that this is the right way. Now I'm saying this is the right way or that, you know, I, now I think this is the right way uh, that just the doubts, I think they can wrestle with. So the, those are a real challenges for the communities. And then of course it can go, it can go to prison. Um mm-hmm. You know, and that's we've heard that story in a lot of contexts, but uh, there's definitely like you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you can go to prison just for converting. Is that right? Yeah, in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. If not, I mean, there's some places where they can just sort of find some trumped up charges. That's not uncommon either. So if it's not built into the law, uh, you can still you can we still can figure out there. a way. Yeah, which is what happened to several guys that I knew, where I, they they were not sent to prison for you know directly for being a Christian. That was not what was on the charge, but it was essentially why they went to prison. Mm-hmm. How long is there any? How long do they have to typically serve? I'm sure they're trying to unconvert them in prison, or you know, like all those all those temptations. Like all you have to do is recant. You know, you come back. And I've seen it all across the board from, you know, just going in for a few weeks and being questioned or a few days, even being questioned and intimidated to a year or two, to one, one guy that I knew 15 year sentence. Mm. So uh, I think you've got all across the board. Yeah. It's a cost big one. Mm -hmm. And then there's those that, that, you know, the ultimate cost is death. Um, if you haven't ever read the Nick Ripkin books, really highly recommend them. He talks about this as in the insanity of God. He's telling his story. I'll tell a small piece of it. Uh, he said he worked in Somalia. And he said when he went there, uh, that there was enough, enough believers to fill a small Kentucky church. And when he left, there was enough believers to fill a pew because they'd all been mm-hmm. killed, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, 
it's hard to imagine that. And it's hard. I can't, I have a hard time imagining living with that kind of stress on you at all the time. Yeah. You know, just like soldiers, you know, come home, they have PTSD from that, that like kind of constant awareness that uh, at any point in time, something could happen. So they're facing kind of a similar thing. And man, the only thing I know, the only thing I know you can do to get through that is just have like having a peace with God. Um, or if you, if you remember back, do you ever watch the the series Band of Brothers? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's yeah. there's this uh, one officer who's pretty cavalier, and he comes up to this soldier, and the guy's cowering and all this stuff, and he basically he he says like you just got to figure out like you're already dead, like you're not going to live out this campaign, and so once you figure out you're already dead, then you can just go and do whatever, you know. You, you, and he went, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's hard, and the, I I can't imagine just the the difficulties of working in a place where those that you lead to Christ, there's a very real possibility of their death or imprisonment. Um, you, like you said, you really have to be solid. I mean, you have to be wise too. I think uh, mm-hmm. there's some, sometimes people go into these situations and say, well, why are we trying to prevent them from, you know, being persecuted with, you know, by being careful about security and all this stuff, like we're not, you know, let's, and that that's not for us to decide. We, no one needs to be persecuted because of our foolishness. But we do also need to recognize that could happen. So we, we operate with wisdom and care. Um, but yeah, you've got to really be solid in, in understanding that uh, what, you know, what Paul said of to die is gain. That has to be really uh, strong within your spiritual DNA. So uh, it's, it's challenging. Yeah, you have to know it's worth the cost. And you're going to have to, you're going to, have to bear some of that with them, either, either kind of living those struggles marry, not marry, go to prison. What about my wife? If I go to prison and my kids and all these things, we were talking earlier, sometimes just about our view of persecution in terms of like, you know, we talk a lot that the persecuted church grows. That's kind of one of our things we say a lot. How do you feel about that? Is it always true? I think it's another thing we have to be a little bit careful about because sometimes we say it, uh, very lightly, you know, to like, oh yeah. Oh, there's persecution going on. Great. I bet the church is really growing as a result. You know, that's, let's not, let's not be worried about persecution. Uh, we do have examples, you know, certainly in the book of acts, we see where persecution sends out the church and, and there's uh, multiplication that happens from that. We do have historical examples. Uh, you know, China is often touted as a place where, uh, persecution seemed to really, you know, strengthen the church's resolve and, uh, you know, cause it to really move forward, multiply, but you've got plenty of historical examples where at least in the short term, persecution was very effective in squashing the church. Uh, we have to be real about that as well. Now we ultimately believe, you know, that, that God is ultimately triumphant and that he's working amidst that. So that's not a, a an indication of my doubt in God's ability to work in persecution, but, you know, you look at places like Japan in the, the 17th century and, and the incredible persecution that happened there really squashed out the church for a long time. I mean, I think Nick Ripken talks about that in Somalia, just the, when a church is weak and vulnerable still, uh, you know, persecution can really have that, a negative short-term effect on it. And so... You know, in those cases, we really have to trust in the sovereignty of the Lord and, and believe that he 
there's maybe seeds being sown. There's maybe something going on we can't see and that, you know, he works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purposes. And so we, uh, you know, we trust that, but uh, it's not a one size fits all when persecution comes to, to hit the church. So how do we, how do we work wisely? What does that look like? I think in general, we need to let people choose to, um, to be bold and to take risks rather than forcing that on them by our own carelessness or cavalier attitude. Uh, again, I, I can remember some people that came to work where we were and, you know, we'd say like, yeah, let's be a little bit careful about speaking on behalf, saying that this guy's a believer or this is where the church meets so on and so forth. And they kind of felt like, well, you know, being persecuted is part of being a Christian. So we're not, let's not coddle people and, and, you know, pre prevent them from being persecuted and, and, you know, hiding, but, you know, not being honest about their faith. And I mean, I, I can kind of see where they're coming from, but you've got to let people choose that themselves. And so we operate boldly in our own sharing as to the level that we, you know, is appropriate. And in, in our own identification with Jesus, I think generally we have to, now we can advise and encourage, but we have to not try to speak on behalf of others, not do things that would unnecessarily expose them before they are ready to make that choice. So I think those are all ways that we operate in wisdom. Uh, we want people to be persecuted for their choosing to have faith, not their choosing to associate with foreigners, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that a, a, a lot as well. It's like making sure they're being persecuted for the right thing. Um, and that's a challenge for the worker. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what can you do? Can't you do? I think we would both say there's, there's people that we were connected with that we don't connect with now, not because we don't love them and think about them, but because us contacting them is not good for them, you know, and, and there's no reason for them to be persecuted just because they know us or because we're a foreigners talking to them, mm -hmm. you know, let it be for the, the sake of Jesus. Yeah. Um, I mean, the flip side of that is true. I think some people are so afraid to take, you know, to go in and to share and to help and to disciple because they're afraid, well, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. So you could, you could be on either extreme of this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think just a spirit led, you know, wisdom and also faith, Kind of, kind of put wisdom and faith working together. Mm -hmm. I think another thing, I, I don't know that this is always possible, but again, in a perfect scenario, you, you would be trying to work with a group working with the family itself. Cause if the family comes, you know, and a lot of times we see, we see like whole groups will come to faith at the same time. Kind of like when uh, Peter went to talk to. Oh, what was the guy's name? Cornelius. You're talking about Cornelius. Cornelius yes. Right? You know, like the whole family becomes, you know, they all, they all put their faith in him. And so in the same way, like if you can lead a family to the Lord, you know, they 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 still going to have a lot of outside pressure from the community, but they're at least still there as a as a unit. And that that can help a lot. And that is a, a strategy that I hear among some people working with Muslims, you know, either emphasizing talking to the head of the household, you know, that just the way the family dynamics work, if you can, at least if the head of the household can be accepting of you sharing with member, you know, their son or their daughter or their whoever, you know, that that's a way to 
be a strategy or to try to share with the family all together when you're going, not just one person off by themselves. Uh, I mean, I even knew some guys that if someone came to them, some young man, in my case would be young man came to them uh, and said, Hey, I'm interested in studying the Bible with you or hearing more about Jesus. They would say, you need to go to your father and get his permission, talk to him and let him know what you're doing. I, I, I mean, I can see why they did it. It seemed, that seemed a bit extreme, but you know, you see down the road where it's really difficult for people once they become a believer, if their family doesn't know about it. So that's, yeah, the, yeah that's, that's what kind of all of a part of this never ending, figuring out the strategy of sharing with Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. What about, what about the scenario now, you know, you have somebody that came to the Lord, they're getting persecuted and they went out. Do you help them out? Do you have them stay? What's the correct, what's the, what's the breadth of responses we can have to that? Yeah. I uh, think sometimes, well, sometimes we, we see, you know, these impassioned pleas, you know, like I've got to get this person out of there, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes, especially the Western church, we can be very, very uh, motivated and mobilized to like get somebody out of persecution. Um, but as one of my friends said, most of us, had we been in the book of Genesis, we would have rescued Joseph from the prison and we would have uh, completely messed up God's entire plan for saving the Israelites. So how do we wrestle with that? It's probably a lot like the marriage issue. you got a lot of imperfect solutions to a complicated issue. I do think in general, we are a bit, quick to let's get someone out of just, you know, an uncomfortable or dangerous or whatever situation. Uh, as you said, we, we can be really mobilized and motivated to do that, but that's not to say there couldn't be a situation where the Lord would call us to help someone and, and, mm-hmm. you know, help them get out of a situation where their life is threatened or endangered. You know, I, I do think about in a lot of places where that's happened, how will the church you know, grow or thrive in that area. But that's, again, that's easy for me to sit here and say when it's not my life on the line. So, yeah, I, I wish I had a clearer answer, but I think it, it's a, it's a complicated issue, but I think we, we need to be careful not to too quickly want to pull believers out of difficult situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. makes me think, I don't know the exact verse, but it's in Ecclesiastes. I believe it says the man of God will avoid all extremes. You know, and every every situation has to definitely be weighed, and and sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes you do. You know, helping them walk through it, and I think just like there is a cost, there's definitely a cost to stay, and there's also a cost to leaving. And ultimately, like, what does God what does God want them to do? And then maybe having some freedom. Um, definitely from the Western perspective, I think sometimes when we, even when you go on a short term mission trip what a lot of people come away with uh, it, or you'll even hear people talk about, man, I really want my kids to go, you know, see this third world country. So they know how good they have it. You know, and what we, what we leave away with is thinking about their poverty financially or their hardship financially. Uh, and we don't see, we don't see the riches of Christ and we don't see what, what we want a lot of times for them is like, now I'd like them to become a, a middle-class American or a middle-class wherever they're from. But, you know, like, Let's let's do away with pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes because we're not very good, present company included, um, mm-hmm. not very good with with pain and suffering and uh, enduring yeah. hardships for the gospel. 
Right. And, and again, I, I don't want to make light of, I think there are real examples in America of people losing jobs uh, over, you know, their, their choice, they're staying strong to in their faith or uh, being mistreated, mislandered, things like that. These are, are real uh, painful things that people have gone through. But I think in general, we have experienced a level of freedom and comfort as Christians. And we have, while there is hostility to Christianity in our culture, we have so enough critical mass of people who agree with us and, you know, would think the way we do and, and would support what we do that you can find community here. And so I think, uh, you know, sometimes we're, it's hard for us to understand when someone has experienced a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of, uh, you know, this or that to feel like, wow, well, this, we've got to, we've got to end this immediately. We've got to do exactly, you know, whatever we can to get this uh, to not happen to somebody, but uh, that's a pretty normative experience for believers across the world, across history is to experience some suffering and some uh, persecution for their faith. We're, we're a bit of an anomaly, I think in the American Mm -hmm. church. So what, um, what do we do about it? What's our, what's our call to action? when we think about the Muslims coming to faith and having to, having to pay that cost. If you're a podcast listener, what, would, what do we want our podcast listeners to do? Well, I, I do think uh, Christians in general have become a little bit more aware. There may have been a time where people may just not have known that persecution happened for a lot of believers. Uh, I see a little bit greater awareness. I, you know, there's these things like the uh, open doors ministry. I don't know if you've heard of that, that, they put out an index of places where there's persecution. Uh, in fact, this year, North Korea had been the highest for many years. They've been number one on the persecution list. Afghanistan actually passed them up. And so not only do they have information about persecution, but they have ways to pray and, and support. Mm-hmm. I think those are just increasing awareness. I think evaluating our own willingness to suffer, to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. One of the challenges that we have because we have had that level of freedom and comfort here is you start talking about global missions. And the first thing we say is, will it be safe? Will it be, you know, will it be okay? Where does the Bible tell us that it will be safe if we want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? It doesn't. It's, it's, the gospel will not go to the ends of the earth without people who are willing to sacrifice big or small. And so, you know, we, I think we need to evaluate our own willingness to suffer for Christ. Uh, I, I like when David Platt was president of the IMB, he had this phrase. He said, all the easy ones are already taken. When he's, he's talking about, you know, places to go or unreached people groups out there. He said, the easy ones are taken. So it's going to cost something to do this. Uh, are we willing to lay that down to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth? Uh, I think that's, that's challenging for me even. It is. Even when I think about when I first went, uh, you know, to the eastern part of Asia, uh, I had a very supportive family, but there would have definitely been, had I been going to a Muslim area, that would have definitely been a much higher way the cost. And even for myself, you know, I'd have been far more nervous. I would have needed to count the cost a little bit more. I don't know that I still feel that same way. I might. I mean, if I, yeah, I have my list, right? You know, it's like you want me to go to Afghanistan or go to Iraq or, you know, you, you can pick North Korea or my uh, nervous would, would increase a little bit. But those places, you know, those places desperately need the gospel. 
I have a daughter that prays almost daily for the salvation of Kim Jong-un. I mean, I don't know why, I don't know how she got onto this kick, but we're probably a couple of years into it right now. And uh, she still, still prays very faithfully for that, which is, you know, one of the things that you can do in response to hearing this is, is become prayerful about it. And don't, this is the hard thing. Don't just pray that God will take him out of persecution you know, pray that the gospel will go forward. And I forget who said it, but someone, it might've been Nick Ripkin again, said that the quickest way to end persecution is to lead your persecutor to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so the, the more the gospel can spread. And the, the other thing is, is there's nothing, man, it's a, easy to say, there's nothing in this world that we will suffer that compares at all with the suffering of an eternity in hell. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. That's right. Yeah, we've got to we've got to have good theology, good perspective on these things, good uh, Bible understanding. I think that really goes a long ways. You've mentioned several times uh, Nick Ripken's resources. One that was pretty significant for me was a message that John Piper gave. Uh, I mean, this is probably 25 years ago at least. It was called "Doing Missions When Dying Is Gain." Mm. Uh, you can you know, if you go to his website, Desiring God dot org.com something like that uh, and search for that doing missions when dying is gain uh it's it's powerful it's it's really uh, it gives great perspective uh to what it's going to take for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth and and what we should be willing to just the, the perspective that we should have and all that so i'd recommend that one as well yeah that sounds really good i will check that out hope you will too listeners um i was just doing a little bit of uh, the research. I haven't read this guy's book, but I've heard of it. Uh, there's a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Uh, would probably be a good read if you wanted to to go further down this down this road. Anything else you want to say on on uh, counting the cost before we kind of wrap up our whole series? Well, we talked about praying for people. I'd, I'd like to give uh, maybe an individual person that we could pray for an individual story of someone that I knew that I was not close with this person, but I, I met them and I knew them. I'll just use a, a pseudonym, even though you, you mean you could find stuff about them on the internet. This it's not a secret, their story, but you know, this was a, a, a Muslim background believer who became a leader of a church in a certain area was very, just had a really powerful ministry. I'll call him uh, Abdullah and uh, had, was married, had two little boys kind of been, this would be now 12, 13 years ago, uh, there began to be some real persecution in that area. Government got a little bit worried about him and his influence and his uh, interactions with uh, some of the, some outsiders that had come in, some, some uh, foreign believers. And so um, began, put him in prison, picked him up, interrogated him, put him in prison, and then tried to find a reason why he should be in prison. So that, that's <laughs> kind of how things worked there, sadly. And it took two years for them to figure out how they were going to find a good reason. So he's just, you know, yeah. languishing in prison, completely innocent. Finally, they decided that at some point they had found out that while he was being interrogated and brought to the, you know, I think there's some times where he kind of went in, was questioned, and then was released, you know, kind of went in and out a little bit. He talked to another, an expat, a a foreign worker that was there and said, Hey, they, I just want you to know, they asked me a few questions about you. So I think there may be, 
you know, you should just be aware they're, they're kind of looking at you right now. And so they finally decided that that was giving away uh, state secrets mm. that he had committed a, a form of treason by doing that. And so that was what they finally convicted him for after two years of searching and put him in jail for 15 years. Still, still in prison currently, I, I think is in the latter part of that sentence. I'm not sure how many years he has left, but uh, again, this is, this affects a lot of lives. His wife, you know, and her ability to uh, support herself in this Muslim community, very, very difficult. Uh, his boys that were young, they're now teenagers uh, and just have grown up without a dad. And I think there have been some really courageous believing men who have tried to step into that void and uh, love his kids and, and be around them, but you can't replace dad, you know, you, and so there, the, the, the sacrifice there is real. And, and those that have visited him in prison, I mean, it's just the toll on him physically, his health has been uh, just tre tremendous change in his appearance and his health, but he has remained faithful. He has shared his faith in prison. Um, he has, when people have visited, he's tried to be an encouragement and just say, you know, God, God is good. Uh, that, that verse from Romans that I mentioned earlier that, you know, that he uh, works for the good of those who love him or called according to his purpose. That, that verse, I think, you know, has really tried to embrace that and, and share that with people like, hey, don't feel sorry for me. I'm, I know Jesus, but but you can't get away from the cost for him. So I, I would just think if people would pray for him, pray for his family, I think that would be really meaningful to me. I have this, this thing on my phone that shows me pictures from the same day, other years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this time of year, I, I can't remember. I think it's in March. Maybe it'll, the picture a time where I was meeting with, we had a meal with him comes up this is before he was put in prison, obviously. And just, it's hard to see, but it reminds me to pray. Yeah. Uh, it's so easy to get distracted. So setting reminders, setting things that touch our hearts, remind us about what's true and what's good. It's really important. And listeners. So that, that kind of wraps up our whole, our whole mini series on working with Muslims. Um, and so my question for you uh, you've stuck with us this long, is what is God telling you to do out of this? What do you do having just invested, you know, four or five hours in learning about Muslims? You know, for some of you guys, you know, maybe on one of our short-term teams this year that's that's going to work with Muslims, um, I, would, I would question you for some of the others, like is God calling you to something bigger, deeper, longer term? You know, does God want you to go to the Muslim world? Man, it's a big world, lots of places. I think if you're willing to listen to however many hours of James and I talk, then that's a sign from the Lord that you're called, maybe. <laughs> that's right. You've endured some <laughs> I kid, suffering. I kid, but I, I hope people <laughs> will take up the call. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really hope so, too. Uh, what have we said? Two, I'm sorry, 2 billion Muslims? One billion Muslims? Not, not quite that many. 1.3 okay. and growing. Maybe it's 1.4 now. I'm not sure. So, so there's a lot of them. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Brad, when we were talking that if you want to reach, if you want to go to the UPGs, Unreached People Groups, a lot, a lot of them are Muslim. 
And there's some great advantages to working with Muslims that like when we worked with Buddhists and atheists and it just wasn't, wasn't an advantage. One of them is that they like to talk about spiritual things. It may not be the spiritual conversation you want to have, but it's at least a spiritual conversation. Another advantage is it seems like God, I don't know, God, God's shifting things, orchestrating things, moving things around. And he seems to be putting a focus there. And, you know, there's all these evidences uh, like we covered in the last um, episode about dreams and visions, like God's working there. And anytime you can join God where he's working, I mean, how much better does it get than that? Yeah, I'll go back to the point I made in maybe one of our first episodes of there's a reason why Muslims are on our minds, you know, than they weren't 30 years ago, uh, that God seems to keep bringing them both to our minds just by the, the collision of our two uh, you know, Western society and, and Muslim society, bringing them to our doorsteps. I mean, I don't know how many communities of people now have received Afghan refugees mm-hmm. in the last few months. I mean, just every, almost every place that I've you know, talked to somebody, yep, we've got 300 Afghan refugees here now. Uh, there's a reason for these things. I think this is, these are painful as the, you know, what caused all of this. Uh, I think God is at work in it. It reminds me a little bit in the book, God Smuggler, Brother Andrew talks about, I forget which country it was, uh, but like they had just, Soviet Union had just like marched in, you know, and, and was, was taking, taking them over. And he was like the, one of the few guys going in when everyone else was going out. And what he told the believers, he said, for years, I've told you, you have to go to the Russians. You've got to go there and, you know, and, and spread the gospel there. And you didn't go to them. And so now God's brought them to you. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to go to Afghanistan personally, then maybe, maybe reaching out to some Afghan refugees would be a really great way for you yeah. to obey God and have an opportunity to do what he's doing. I just looked, sorry, I was um, being naughty and I got on and Googled. I think you're right. So two, uh, according to Google, 2 billion Muslims. So uh, I didn't think it was that many. Yeah. So it's growing. Learn to love Muslims. Mm-hmm. We've had a, like even I said, you know, when I first went overseas, had it been to a Muslim area, I'd have been a much more nervous but, you know, you, I, I love yeah. my people group, you know, learn to love, learn to love their people groups. What else can they do, Brad? I mean, we've said a pr- prayer. I, I think you've, you've already said it, but um, uh, I, I think being willing to reach out to those that are here to go to those that are there. Uh, these are all things that, um, there aren't a lot of people doing them if we're honest with each with ourselves. And so uh, be different, you know, choose, make different choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listeners, we do appreciate you. I hope I didn't give you a guilt trip there. That was not my intention, but I do hope, I do hope when you listen to this, that God touched your heart. Um, and I hope he gives you some opportunities uh, both here and there to interact with Muslims and to share the love of Isa, Allah Masiya with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really appreciate your thoughts, James. And um, yeah, w- why don't I close us by praying for uh, our listeners and for the Muslim world? Sounds great. Well, we do thank you for this time that we've had these episodes to think about Muslims during Ramadan here. And um, we're praying, Lord, we, we believe that you can overcome all the obstacles, the persecution, the uh the difficulties of access, the difficulties of language and culture, that you can overcome these things 
to bring the gospel to them. And so we're praying during this time as, as Ramadan continues on that many would come to faith during this time and that many of our listeners would be challenged to pray and to uh, reach out to Muslims in their community and to go, to go to places where a few know the gospel. And so we just ask you to be glorified as many are one day, many Muslim background believers are worshiping before your throne in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All righty, listeners, we'll catch you next time. All right, see you next time. Thanks, James. Thank you.